Good morning. It is great to uh, see you. It's great to be with you. And uh, before I get started here, I, I just want to thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for granting me the blessing and the honor, the privilege of addressing a topic that is so near and dear to my heart and one that I believe is near and dear to the heart of our God. So if you have your Bibles with you, we'll turn with me to James chapter 1, the book of James <clears throat> chapter 1. We're going to look at one verse, and I think you know what verse that is. Verse 27, a verse that I'm sure is familiar to a lot of us, especially here at this church, but a verse that I believe God would have us examine once more. James chapter 1, verse 27. Now before we dive into the verse, let me give you the context of our passage so that we understand where James is coming from. In the preceding verses, verses 19 through 25, James talks about the centrality of God's word and how we are to be doers of the word and not just hearers. And the reason for that is because the scriptures were given not simply to inform, but to transform to transform our hearts and our minds, our lives, and that change occurs when we actually do what it says. And in verses 26 and 27, James shows us what a doer of the word looks like. First, he says a person who has a true grasp on spirituality controls his tongue. In other words, if you say you're religious, if you say you have faith, but you don't bridle an unloving, gossiping, lying tongue, then James says your faith is worthless. It's not the real thing. And then he says in the very next verse what the real thing looks like, what it does. Look at verse 27 with me. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What an astounding, astounding statement. James says, this is undefiled religion. This is pure religion as far as God is concerned. To visit orphans and widows in their distress, true religion is not just hearing truth. It is not a monotonous routine of religious activity week after week. No, true religion, the heart of true religion is to care about the people that God cares about, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And the word of visit here means so much more than dropping by to say hello every once in a while. This is the word that was used to describe God when he would visit his people and it meant to seek them out with a deep concern for their well-being and a commitment to care, to actually care for their needs. And James drives us home later in chapter 2 when he says that a true living faith is expressed in good works and acts of mercy toward the poor, the downtrodden, the helpless in our midst. And that's one of James' central points in this letter. Now, it's important that we understand that what James says here in verse 27 is not said in a vacuum. He is not arbitrarily singling out orphans and widows as people we ought to care about. What he's doing here is simply reiterating what God has said throughout the Old Testament about the people that he cares about. And when you read the Old Testament scriptures, you find that there are three groups of people that God singles out time and time and time again 
as the objects of his special mercy. And they are the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner. The orphan, the widow, and the sojourner. For instance, Deuteronomy 10.18 says, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 146, verse 9, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. So God describes himself as their defender, their protector, and provider, and not surprisingly, God expects his people to do the same. And we see an example of this in Deuteronomy 14, 20, where God says, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled. And the Lord your God will bless you in all the work that your hands do. So God promises to bless those who bless them. And conversely, God warns of judgment. He warns of punishment to those who mistreat them. For instance, Exodus 22, verse 21, God says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with a sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Wow. God isn't messing around here, is he? He is dead serious when it comes to caring for them. All of which begs the question, why? Why does God care so much about them? Why is he so drawn to the orphan, the sojourner, the widow? Here's why, because they were the most helpless. They were the most vulnerable. They were the most, the least powerful people in that society. To be a sojourner meant that you were incredibly vulnerable because in that day, your tribe, your people was everything, and to be away from your people meant that you were entirely on your own. You had nothing. And to be a widow in that day is vastly different from what it is to be a widow today. Today, there are a number of social programs to look after, care for widows. No such thing existed in biblical times. To be a widow in that day meant that you were on your own, and it was even worse for the orphan. There were no welfare programs. No orphanages to take him in. There was no foster care system. To be an orphan in that day meant that you had no one to look after you. No one to shield you. No one to protect you. No one to care for you. You were entirely on your own. And it's one thing for a grown-up to fend for themselves. It's another thing for a child to fend for himself and survive in a brutal, savage world. And understandably, they were the most vulnerable of them all. And that is why God describes himself as, get this, the father to the fatherless. God says, that's me. I am the father to the father. The God of the universe takes up their cause. And God tells his people, Israel, you, you take up their cause. Why? Here's why because that's exactly what God had done for them. You see, Israel was a sojourner before God called him and made his, his people. Israel was the widow until God became her husband. Israel was the orphan until God became their father. All that God was calling them to do are things that he himself had done first for them. And brothers and sisters, it is no different with you and me today. We were sojourners wandering aimlessly in this world until Christ came for us and found us. 
We were spiritual widows until Christ, our bridegroom, entered into an everlasting covenant with us. We were spiritual orphans without a father until God adopted us as his sons through Christ. That was us. That was us. And that's what a Christian is. A Christian is one who says, that was me. That was me. I was vulnerable. I was helpless. I was fatherless. But I was shown mercy. God had mercy on me and sent his son for me. So when you come across someone who is actually vulnerable, actually fatherless, actually helpless, you see yourself. You see yourself, you see who you once were, and you see what God in his mercy has done for you, and that in turn causes you to do something for them. Orphan care will not mean much to you until this single truth takes hold of your heart, until you see just how personal this is. It's going to be very difficult for you to understand why James says pure and undefiled religion before God is to care for orphans until you see that that's exactly what God has done for you. That when we were spiritual orphans without a father, Christ came for us. He came for us. He sought us out. And through his death on the cross, we have been adopted into the family of God. We have been adopted by God. I know you've heard that a thousand times, but hear it again. You and I have been adopted by God. Feel the weight. Oh, feel the weight of that again. Let that sink in, Christian brother and sister. We have been adopted by the God of the universe. You are an adopted son, an adopted daughter of God. And here's why this is so important. Because as Tony Merida has said, your theology inevitably leads to your biography. Your theology inevitably leads to your biography. In other words, your understanding of God will determine what you do with your life. What you believe about God determines how you live. Always. Always. That is why when it comes to this issue of orphan care, the place where we have got to begin always is an understanding of what God and his mercy has done for us. And Paul tells us in Galatians 4.4, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul says God sent his son to redeem us how? By fulfilling the requirements of the law on our behalf, thus justifying us before God. That is, we who are sinners are declared righteous before God, not based on anything we've done, but based entirely on what Christ has done for us. Now, that in itself is astounding. It's mind-blowing that a holy God would sacrifice his own son for the sake of sinners like us is astounding. And if that's all there was to God sending his son, if there was a period after to redeem those under law, none of us should be disappointed. We would have more than enough reason to praise God forever on a, in a day, but it doesn't end there. Paul says God's purpose in sending Jesus doesn't stop with our justification. No, we were justified so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, God's purpose began with redemption, but it culminated with adoption. It began with redemption. It culminated with adoption. To be declared righteous by God, the judge, is amazing. It is a great thing. But Paul says that that's not even the best part. What do you mean that's not the best part? 
You mean to tell me there's a good, there's a greater and a greater with God? Yes. The greater is knowing that you are declared righteous by God the judge. The greater is knowing that you are declared loved by God the Father. That's even better. And that's what let J.I. Packard write. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. And then he says, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. In other words, brothers and sisters, the extent to which you and I understand adoption is the extent to which we understand the gospel. And that is why John Piper, my personal hero, said, adoption is the heart of the gospel. It is the heart of the gospel. Adoption is central to who we are. It's the very thing that defines us. That we are the adopted sons and daughters of God. And that is why adoption for us as believers isn't just a good thing to do. No, the gospel necessitates it. The gospel necessitates that we do for others what God in his mercy has done for us. That much is clear, isn't it? The vertical love that we embrace, the vertical adoption we celebrate, it has to somehow translate into the horizontal. Now, I'm not saying every Christian is to adopt. That I personally don't believe God calls every Christian to adopt. But I believe with all my heart that every Christian, every Christian has a stake in the matter. Every single one of us. Why? Because our God does. He's got a huge stake in the matter. And if we are his people, if we are to be imitators of God, then we have got to imitate God in this. And what God has done for us, we have got to do for others. And that is why what we do as Christians isn't mere humanitarianism. We are not driven by altruism. That's why adoption isn't for couples who can't have kids. It's for people who are attuned to the gospel. People who love the gospel and have been changed by the gospel and want to live out and proclaim the gospel. And the reason adoption so powerfully proclaims the gospel because, is because it's the one act that most directly mirrors God's action toward us. When redeemed men and women extend the hand of mercy to children in need and bring them into their homes, their hearts, and their families, the world sees a real-life picture. The world sees a real-life picture and real-life illustration of the gospel. Think about how counterculture it is for Christians to adopt a young boy with a clip palette from China where most see him as defective. How counterintuitive it is for Christians to adopt children from a different race or ethnicity. White adopting brown. Brown adopting yellow. Yellow adopting black. What better way to model to the world a God who adopts children from every nation, tribe, and tongue? So it's the gospel. It's the gospel. That's what's at the center of all this. It's the gospel that compels us to care for orphans and bring them into our homes, but it doesn't stop there. Brothers and sisters, it's the gospel that sustains us in our adoption. What motivates us to adopt orphans is the very thing that sustains us in our adoption of orphans. Because adoption is not an easy thing. It is not easy. 
And it's important that I say that because I think much of what's done for orphans in our culture, even in our church culture, is owing to altruism. And in some respects, the very opposite, a desire for selfish gain, a desire born out of selfishness. And that was sort of the case with me. You know, when Gene and I were looking to adopt our second child, we initially wanted to adopt internationally. And you know what country I had us looking to first? The Dominican Republic. Now, why the Dominican Republic? I wanted us to look there because I envisioned adopting this kid who would one day play shortstop <laughs> for the Dodgers. And I'm a big diehard baseball fan, a diehard Dodger fan. Yes, yes. I too have been depressed the last couple of weeks, straight up dark night of the soul. Dark night of the soul, man. But that tiny little country produces a lot of great shortstops, and so I had us look there. <laughs> but God just closed the door. It, it just, we just did not meet the requirements. You know what, where I had us look next? Venezuela. Because that country also produces a lot of great baseball players. I kid you not, I'm not making this up. You can ask my wife. But I think that mindset, that kind of mindset is a lot more common than we would like to admit. I mean, adoption has become trendy in our day, hasn't it? It's cool now to care for orphans. And we hear about these celebrities, these Hollywood celebrities, Sandra Bullock and Charlize Theron, Madonna and how they're adopting kids, and we want to jump on that bandwagon. And I think there lurks in the back of a lot of people's minds this idea that it would be so cool to have a kid of a different race or country in our Christmas card that we send out to all of our family and friends. But here's the problem. What happens when the child you bring into your home isn't all that cute? What happens when that child suffers from emotional dysregulation and can't even sit still for the family photo without melting down? What happens when the child you bring into your home has real developmental delays because she has been exposed to drugs and alcohol in the womb? What happens when you try to love that child but he rejects it every time, every time, because he doesn't know what to do with it because he's never had it. Love and affection is such a foreign concept. He, he just, re it scares him to death and so he rejects you every time. What, what happens then? What happens when the child you bring into your home puts your other children at risk because of his violent outbursts? You see, altruism will not get you through that. The only thing that will get you through that, the only thing that will carry you and sustain you in that is that, the cross. The cross of Christ. A while back, Jean shared with me a blog written by an adoptive mom named Stacy Gagnon. And I want to share with you a part of what she had written in an article entitled, How Adoption Destroyed My Life. What a title, How Adoption Destroyed My Life. She writes, I was warned these kids will ruin your life. I was warned that they grow up and they won't be so cute when you're caring for a 35-year-old still living in your home. What if they are so damaged they end up in prison? What if they can never love you back and you poured all this money and time into them 
What if this, doing this totally destroys everything you built for yourself? How will this affect your biological children? Aren't you too old for this? What if they ruin you? I say it's time we evaluated what we are living for and choose to be ruined. Maybe ruination is where we're supposed to live. Maybe this adoption thing is hard work, ugly tears, broken hearts, and sleepless nights. Maybe it's a daily struggle and the rewards are small and few. Perhaps the cost outweighs the, pay, the gain. It's possible they grow up to become felons or they can never live independently. Perhaps they hate me and want to hurt me because it's too much to trust an adult again. And the fear is greater than my love. But maybe I choose adoption because Christ adopted me when I was broken. Irredeemable and hard work. Maybe he chose me when no one else would. Maybe God took my broken pieces and loved me in spite of the reward. Maybe he picked me, me, when I had nothing to give in return. I look at this ruination and I guess I don't see the mess, the pain, the reality. I guess love must make me blind to the present and the past, but opens my my eyes wide into eternity. Because what I see are children that I love fiercely. I see the blessing of the tiny victories because I know the steep path taken to achieve them. I see the internal battles and the emotional scars of abuse and I marvel at their resilience. My eyes are open now. And I guess this ruination is exactly where I want to live because God, you live there too. And he does. And as Jean shared she and I have experienced this ruination too. Having adopted two boys from the foster care system, we have seen firsthand the brutality and the beauty of adoption. We have seen firsthand what trauma has done, how trauma has shaped them, the loss that those two boys deal with every single day. And there have been plenty of days for Gene and I. There have been plenty of days that have been filled with despair, darkness, depression, especially as it relates to Jack-Jack, our second son. We got Jackson when he was two months old. And at the age of two months, we were his third placement. For starters, Jackson was exposed to alcohol and drugs in utero. And if that wasn't enough, in one of his previous placements, he was severely neglected. Where as a brand newborn, as a newborn infant, he was left to cry alone in the crib for hours on end. Hours on end. All of which affected his brain development and, and the way he processes emotions, the way he processes anxiety, all of which is commonly expressed daily in loud outbursts and meltdowns and tantrums, and they are constant. And there's only so much one could take. And after about the hundredth one, man, I'm done. And I've lost it more times than I care to remember. And I've had to do business with God over this. Specifically, I've had to deal with my resentment, my resentment with God concerning him. I was, my wife grieved, I got angry. 
I was deeply bitter towards God for putting that kid in my life. Because God ruined me. He ruined my life through that kid. But thank God for his grace and mercy. Thank God for his grace and mercy on people like me. Because I'm at a place now, guys, where I thank God for the ruination. I thank God for Jackson. I love that boy so much. I wouldn't trade him for the world. And I thank God for choosing me to be his daddy because of what that little boy has taught me. And that little boy has taught me more than anyone or anything in my life. He has taught me the beauty and the power of the gospel. Because you see, I look at Jackson and I see the cross. I look at that boy and he is a daily reminder to me of the cross of Christ. You say, how? Here's how. It's at the cross that I see that the very thing that I can't stand in him was in me. It's at the cross that I see my own outbursts and tantrums and meltdowns. It's at the cross that I see how traumatized and broken I was by sin, how controlled I was by my own evil impulses. But it's at the cross that I see the amazing love of God, the unfathomable love of God, the love that saw value in me, and he pursued me when I wanted nothing to do with him. He came for me. He pursued me. He never gave up on me. No matter how much I rejected him, no matter how much I rebelled against me, he found me. He brought me to himself, and he loved me as his own. And when you see what the cross has done, when you realize what took place at the cross, it makes sense. It makes total sense why God would call us to love those who are hard to love and care for the uncontrollable, the ones that this world has deemed unadoptable. Because when you are driven by the cross, as David Plattis said, you realize that you are not the rescuer. Listen, we are not a group of altruistic people out to save these poor little orphans. That is not what this is about. We are not the rescuers. We are the rescued. We are the ones that have been rescued from far worse from far worse from eternal damnation and when you get that when you see that it just makes sense why God calls us to love the most vulnerable and broken the least of these in our midst I want to be careful here I don't want to paint a horrible picture of adoption that is not my intent that is not what I've come to do Because the reality is there are a lot of cases where things are as smooth as can be, as good as can be, where the children are great, the adoptive families are great, and those kids grow up to play shortstop for for a major league baseball team. There are plenty of cases like that at the same time, at the same time. I know there are a lot of families that will tell you of the hardships and the challenges, the, the pain and the struggle, the everyday pain, the everyday battle that adoption can bring. Last year, I had the privilege of being part of the Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit Conference. I was part of the pastor's panel, and that experience changed me. I've never felt more humbled in my entire Christian life because I walked among giants. 
that week I walked among giants. I walked among some of the most unsung heroes of our faith. Over 1,700 men and women who quietly, unassumingly, care for the most vulnerable children in our world with no fanfare and no applause. I'm talking about people who bring in children in the teens. I don't mean they adopt teenagers. I mean they adopt 13, 14, 15 children who are in need of homes. People who've taken the dying. People who've taken the dying. There was this one workshop that my wife and I attended where this elderly couple, this retired couple, they would take in children that were terminally ill so that they can love them and care for them as they die. Who does that? Who does that? I'll tell you who. People that are driven by the cross. People who understand that they themselves have been rescued. That they have been loved with a far, far greater love. That is why why they do what they do, and that is why we do what we do. That is why we, we love differently from the world, and that is why what James says here makes sense, why the mark of true gospel-centered, Christ-driven religion is to care for orphans because that, that was us. That was you, that was me. And what God has done for us, we have to do for others. There are over 147 million orphans in the world right now. If they were a country, they would be the seventh largest country in the world. Children who have no one to call their own. And it's not just a global crisis. There's an orphan crisis in America. More than 800,000 children pass through the foster care system in America every year, bouncing from one house to another to another because they are not wanted. And when they turn 18, they age out. And every year, 30,000 children age out of our foster care system with the expectation that they're going to figure it out on their own. Yet each year, only a small percentage of Christians open the door of their hearts and their homes to these children. If you ask me, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with that picture. We have been given so much. Brothers and sisters, we have been given so much. But far too often we squander the richness of God's grace and the richness of his blessing on ourselves, forgetting that we have been put, in this, uh, put on this earth to proclaim and portray the gospel. That's why James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to what, what does he say? To keep oneself unstained from the world. That second part, It's conjoined with the first. They're not separate. They go hand in hand. What James is saying is this. What is of great concern to God will be of no concern to you when you are corrupted by the world. When your values, your perspective, your heart, when it's shaped by the world, things like orphan care will not mean much to you. So James is issuing a warning. Be careful. Be careful not to be uh, 
controlled and corrupted, molded into the world's image. Because when you do, when that happens, you will miss the heart of true religion. You will miss the very heart of God. But I thank God that this church hasn't. Oh, grace, you be free. I thank God so much for you. You are a beacon of light and hope. I thank God that you guys get it. You guys get the gospel. And you live out the gospel. You proclaim the gospel in so many amazing ways. You inspire me. And I hope one day that the church that I lead will look more like this one. There's a deeply theological movie called Nacho Libre. (laughs) One of the best movies ever made. (laughs) The movie's about a friar named Nacho who moonlights as a wrestler. And that's how he raised the funds to care for the orphans in the monastery. There's this one scene where he's talking to his friend Stephen about his desire to care for orphans, and Stephen goes, I'm tired of hearing about the stupid orphans. I hate the orphans. And Nacho goes, what did you say? And he says it again, I hate all the orphans in the whole world. And Nacho responds, I'm not listening to you. You only believe in science. That's probably why we never win. (laughs) To which Stephen says, we never win because you are fat. And they start wrestling each other. Great movie. If you haven't seen it, that's your assignment today. As you reflect on what God would have you do, your assignment is to go and watch Nacho Libre. No one says, I hate all the orphans. I've never heard anyone say that. And I never will. Not in the church. That's not the issue for us. The issue is not that we hate orphans. The issue for a lot of us in the church is that we aren't sufficiently motivated to do something about their plight. But what I've come to tell you, brothers and sisters, is that we, as the redeemed, as the adopted sons and daughters of God, we, of all the people in this world, have all the motivation we need to do something to do something because we are people of the gospel. That's what defines us. And the gospel compels us to do for others what God in Christ has done for us. Amen? Let's go get him. Let's go get him. Let's bring him home.